This is Gabby Triana, author of the Haunted Florida series and host of the YouTube channel The Witch Hunt, and you're listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, our auxiliary monthly podcast. In each episode, we will present a discussion of a story as an addendum to our HP Lovecast or a discussion of an independently selected story or film. We may also interview creators such as writers and artists in the horror and or horror fantasy genres. I'm Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space, as well as the collection James Bond in Popular Culture. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and the editor of The New Peplum for McFarlane. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also for McFarland. For today's episode, we will be discussing Underwater, a science fiction action horror film directed by William Eubank and starring Kristen Stewart, Vincent Castle, and T.J. Miller. For full disclosure, we have purposely avoided the director's commentary so that we could share our own thoughts on this film. Anything we discuss that echoes the director's commentary is a testament to his ability to convey his vision succinctly in the filler, in the film. Also, there are spoilers. Alright, first, let's kick off with a little plot synopsis for Underwater. It's 2050, and the TN Corporation has built a mammoth research and drilling facility at over six miles below the ocean in the Marina Trench. A disaster strikes the Kepler facility, flooding and crushing the structure and leaving only six survivors. Nora, mechanical engineer and main protagonist. Lucian, the captain of the facility. Rodrigo and Paul, both drillers. Smith, an engineer and also boyfriend of Emily, who is a researcher. With all the escape pods gone and the facility in danger of being destroyed in minutes, Lucian concocts a plan for everyone to walk to the seafloor to the nearby Roebuck drilling station. Rodrigo is the first to die as a defective helmet causes him to implode soon after everyone sets off. After a brief encounter of a small aquatic creature of unknown origin, they reach the bottom of the ocean and set off. While traversing a pipe, Paul is dispatched by a deep one. Back on the ocean floor, a deep one becomes more antagonistic to the survivors and abducts Smith. Nora and Lucian save Smith, but are separated from Emily. They try to fend off a deep one while on top of a buoy, and Lucian is carried off where he implodes. Nora makes her way to another station, the long-abandoned Shepherd Station, where she repairs her gear and arms herself with a flare gun. She meets up with Emily and a very incapacitated Smith. Together, they make it to the Roebuck, which is also heavily giants by a giant Cthulhu looming over it. After fending off a few deep ones, they make their way inside the drilling station. However, there are only two operational escape pods left. Nora stays behind and activates the controls of the Roebuck, which will cause an explosion that will wipe out Cthulhu and the deep ones and guarantee Emily and Smith make it back to safety. Unfazed, the TN Corporation goes back to work to make a new drill. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so, Michelle, thoughts on Underwater? Your impressions? Um, initially, 
Uh, excellent film. Uh, it definitely is a good sci-fi action film. Has great horror uh, elements to it. Has a few um, uh, small foibles uh, with regards to like plot and characters, but otherwise, I think it's it's a very entertaining film and uh, definitely worth a watch. How about you? I loved it. We watched it a couple months ago for the first time after kind of sitting on it for a while, and then, of course, rewatched it for this podcast, and, and both instances were, were great experiences. The first one, you know, pure, pure entertainment, and I think a lot of people forget that, you know, Lovecraft stuff, it's supposed to be entertaining, first and foremost. You know, they might go into these long tirades, oh, he really means this, he really means that, and, of course, all these letters he wrote to his friends, he really... No, it's entertainment. <laughs> and this was a very entertaining film, entertaining in a good way, the same way, like, Aliens is entertaining. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on, but it's also engaging. I love the setting of the film. We don't really get enough underwater horror out there. There was that period in the 80s where you had like Deep Star 6 and The Abyss. and the 90s, you had Sphere. But for the most part, they, they don't do wa underwater horror as much. They do on top of water. You know, Jaws and Sharktopuses with three Sharknado heads. Sharknado and, yeah, and those type of things. <laughs> yeah, we, we've kind of, we've lost our way. <laughs> But it was also, you know, really nice to see uh, a real Cthulhu. Uh, you know, mostly we see artistic depictions of Cthulhu and kind of pulpy looking ones. And here we go. Big budget film. There's a Cthulhu right on the screen and, and it delivers. And it's it's great horror. I, I loved all the characters. Everyone had a role. They fulfilled it succinctly and suspenseful. Even second viewing, suspenseful. Wait, we know what's going to happen, but holy crap, it's still, you know white knuckle on the the seat at times oh yeah totally um i think that uh the first viewing very very entertaining and i was not disappointed with the second inter uh second viewing and this is definitely one of those films that i would enjoy going back to again and again even though i know the ending i just think it 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 packs what it needs to it delivers what it needs to i i, I predict in the future this movie will be like Alien, not Alien, Predator, where you're walking by and the TV's going and Underwater's just halfway through. You're like, oh, well, Underwater's on. I better watch it. And you'll watch it halfway through. It'll be one of those types of films that just, it just captivates you. Well, and I think it has the potential of becoming uh, more of a culty film, uh, even though it didn't do well at the box office. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in greater detail further in our discussion. But the fact is, is that I could see this uh, being one of those films that will be shown through, you know, like when we get back to HP uh, Lovecraft film festivals and just those kind of, it, it's it's a great film for that kind of audience and, and more generally too. But it, it, It's a cult film and a cult film for the good reasons, not, we're not talking like uh, Neil Breen or The Room or stuff here <laughs> where it's a cult classic for the wrong reasons. It just... The, the, the type of person who enjoys this film is, you know, the horror aficionados and the Lovecraft people. And I don't think we've ever met a single person who did not like this film. I think it's this general people who, who maybe like a slasher film now and then and, uh, uh, and I don't know what you did last summer type film or whatever that would be kind of more put off by this film, which is, you know, the, the younger demographic, I think. But th this is a, it's definitely going to be a cult film that in five five years will probably have a 
you know, same thing with Event Horizon. Event Horizon tanked at the box office, and it's regarded as one of the, you know, since Alien, one of the best space horror films ever made. That's the ultimate fate for Underwater. Yep. I would completely agree with that. I, like you say, in our, in our network of horror writers and, and so forth, um, this film is, is held as being a, a very good, good, solid film. It, highly regarded and rightly so. And I, I think before we, we actually kind of dive into, dive into talking about Underwater. Oh, was that intended? It was not intended, <laughs> but, but you know what? Now, now that it's there, it's probably going to pop up a lot more times. So <laughs> prepare yourself for a bad uh, diving and aquatic puns. And now that I'm going to try Probably to Probably cap- all from you. <laughs> I'm going to try to capitalize on that. So before we dive into Underwater, I think it's kind of important to talk about the landscape of Lovecraft filmic uh, movies. Um, because this, this is, it's kind of an outlier because it is a big budget film. You don't really see that. Usually when it comes to Lovecraft movies, I, I think you've really got three categories. Yeah, your first category, which is direct adaptations. This is, I'm going to take a Lovecraft story and I'm going to adapt it uh, as best as possible, true to the text. And those are very rare. I mean, I think the H.P. Lovecraft uh, Historical Film Society, whatever they're called. Uh, I didn't mean to butcher his name, I'm sorry. Uh, but, you know, they, they did like a kind of a 1920s throwback to Call of Cthulhu and a 1930s throwback to Whisper from the Darkness. And those are those are fine, but, you know, they're also very small and independent productions. Um, Other adaptations, direct adaptations, hey, I'm going to take this text and adapt it, is very rare. Your second category is the elemental adaptations. is where you take a Lovecraft thing and turn it to a movie. And this is way more common, such as Herbert West's Reanimator. Well, the Jeffrey Combs film, it's not an adaptation of Reanimator. It's more that they took the Herbert West character and kind of, you know, yeah, there, there's, you know, he reanimates corpses. It has the, the core of that story, but it's a completely different story. You know, modern times, more university sequences. He's not going to war or anything like that. It's more of we're going to take the character and have a little bit more liberties with it. And, and that's fine. Um... Uh, other examples, Haunted Palace, uh, the old Corman film, which is supposedly adapted from Charles Dexter Ward. It's only fleeting elements of it. Die, Monster, Die, which is kind of an adaptation of Color Out of Space, but it's really not. You know, it's it's more of a... Uh, they took elements of Color Out of Space, but they turned it into something a little different. And I think that's what most people do with Lovecraft stuff. They'll take one little element of it and turn it to its own thing. And then finally, you have the Lovecraftian, and there's air quotes around that, movies, which have nothing to do with Lovecraft, but they slap that description on to kind of try to describe the film. Um, there was a book that came out about, I don't know, 15 years ago? 2000s, I think, called Lurker in the Lobby. And that it's an index of Lovecraft films, but 50% of them, uh, just off the top of my head, <laughs> my rough guess, is this type of film where it's not... A Lovecraft movie per se, it's Lovecraftian. And I remember reading an entry on Alien. Well, Alien is a Lovecraftian film. I, I don't know if I 100% agree with that or not, but I, I see what they're going for. Ooh, alien landscape, different planet. It's Lovecraftian. Underwater, total second camp. They've lifted Cthulhu out of Call of Cthulhu and put him in the future, underwater, 
completely different story. This is not an adaptation of the Call of Cthulhu or any other story out there. It's just its own thing. In fact, in theory, it doesn't even have to be Cthulhu. It could be a kaiju, you know, a Godzilla-like critter for all we know, but we know it's Cthulhu. And so, but it's its own story. Uh, Underwater is a elemental adaptation, and in that regard, I think it like like some other good ones, successfully lifts its Lovecraft element and integrates a, a fresh new story to it. And I think that's where this, where Underwater really succeeds. I think in partnership with having a bigger budget and a director who, you know, obviously knows uh, the Lovecraft material, uh, the, the inclusion of Cthulhu and then the Deep Ones uh, works well here and it's it's probably one of the best films uh, out there where the budget helps to bring that vision alive that you don't really get there's nothing wrong with the adaptations that are out, out there but they are a smaller budget so they can't show you everything they or they can't even show you what is indicated in the original uh, source material and thankfully, they didn't go the Easter egg route because there's also movies that do that. They'll just they'll throw a character in who uh, the movie has absolutely zero to do with Lovecraft, but they'll throw an Easter egg in, like, oh, we're gonna go stay at the Silver Key Inn, or hey, here's a character that's from Arkham. You know, they're just Easter eggs, and this isn't an Easter egg film. This is this is a good Love Lovecraftian that third moniker, but also adapted. Yeah. Elemental, Ele- Ele- Elemental adapted story. It's just nice to see a Cthulhu <laughs> on the big screen doing what he does best. Um, absolutely, but well, and also there was uh, the Easter egg uh, in Lucian's locker. Okay. So there is an Easter egg. At, at blink and you miss it. They have one of the pages out of Lovecraft's letters where he drew Cthulhu, kind of put in there. That's an Easter egg. Uh, and that's kind of cool. I actually kind of wish they didn't do it. <laughs> I, I, I do too, because I kind of feel like, no, I we, liked that they they took the elements, uh, you know, monster elements. Um, they didn't need to do the Easter egg, but... You're already winking and nodding at us enough by giving us a full frontal Cthulhu. We Easter egg not needed. No. Instead, Easter eggs could have been callbacks to other movies, which is probably how we should segue this dialogue because one of the criticisms segue <laughs> one of the criticisms of this film is that it's derivative and of course it's going to be derivative of alien and we're going to talk about that in a few and I, to be honest i don't mind derivative work i mean if you think about it you got pre and post star wars pre and post alien pre and post matrix pre and post uh a lot of influential films out there. And, of course, you're always going to use those as your benchmarks. Uh, pre and post-Halloween, you know. Uh, after that, you know, every slasher film, yeah, they, they follow the Halloween formula. It's what do they do on their own merit that's good. And uh, so, yeah, th- this movie, Underwater, takes its cues from a lot of other films, and it's probably a good idea to look at these other films kind of in an intertextual way to say, hey, this is what this is like. So Michelle, why don't you go first? Okay, sure. Cause I'll, I'll we'll, we'll go. We'll do our back and forth like we did at the Jason Parent uh, one. Sure. So right in the opening sequence, um, it's hard to detect, but there is a reference to Jaws. Um, there are musical note sequence that doesn't go all the way to the full stanza of 
what's recognizable, but there are definitely about a three, four notes that is jazz oriented. And that is in the opening sequence. It, it gives you this ominous tone, you know, this is not going to be your La La Land type of film, but, you know, we've got some serious shit coming up. Sorry for the swearing. <laughs> also in the beginning sequences, I was getting hardcore Blade Runner vibes. Mm -hmm. They're, when you're looking at the rig and the research facilities and the structures underwater, they got this, like, foggy light to them. And, of course, these are big superstructures. And I think of the cityscape in Blade Runner. You got the kind of the iconic poster of that really circular building that's in the middle of, you know, the, the DVD cover art and all the posters and stuff. And it makes me think of, like, the rig, um, the Roebuck uh, rig specifically. But it's a very... I wouldn't call this a cyberpunk film, although technology plays a very important part of it. But there's just some shades of Blade Runner in the architecture. Yeah, I think the tower is an interesting um, piece, and we'll we'll come back that, to that in one of the other films that I'll bring up. But um, I think of even back to the 1920s with the the whole futurism uh, aesthetic, uh, the you know even the Seattle uh, Space Needle uh, having kind of that similar shape and the architecture from the 1920s. So it's and that, you know, could be giving a nod back to the period of time that Lovecraft uh, wrote in, you know, uh, back in the 20s and the, the 30s. So, anyway. Uh, oh, now it's to me. So, uh, Die Hard. Okay, this is like... This is a big one. This is a, this is a big one. Um, and it, it's very clear. I mean, there's even a, a low-angle shot of uh, Nora barefoot running through the the beginning shots of the kepler station yes and you know it's such a, a it sounds like a minor thing but you know being barefoot is kind of a, it's a big deal uh die hard really capitalized on that you know you got john mcclain running through nakatomi plaza through glass and his feet get messed up and you know those are usually things that heroes don't deal with they usually have boots or shoes on or heels and we're going to come talking about heels in a little bit um or if they are barefoot they're, they're seemingly immune to the effects of the ground but you know it's still an attention to detail you know even though 90% of this film, Nora is in a underwater suit. You know, there's those first few moments on the Kepler where she's running around barefoot and her feet get messed up. And it's a very, it grounds you. It's a, it's kind of like, ooh, I, I can feel that. I stepped on a Lego in real life. I can relate. Um, maybe not that bad, you know, her foot's gushing blood at one point. But it, it's, it's these little attention to details that help elevate an otherwise B film. Because... In theory, in less capable hands, this would have been a total carnosaur Roger Corman type film. But it's the little details that help. Yeah, and I mean, it, that that detail, you know, subsides as they go through and they, they <laughs> suit up. Um, so, it, but, you know, the opening sequence, she's in the, the bath, communal bathroom area. Um, and so she doesn't happen to have shoes on and it, it works. You know, right when you said communal bathroom, I thought of Starship Troopers. <laughs> you thought of Star I thought of RoboCop because oh, okay. well, both 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 the same thing. Ah, let me try that again because I think we're onto something here. I didn't think about this before in our pre notes, but this is like a, a post. You know, who gives a crap about you know male and female or other genders occupying the same bathroom? You know, you're all kind of the one the same. You're all 
you know, working together in this confined space. You don't have the luxury of, you know, your own private bathroom or anything. And it kind of says something about at least these workers as a little sub-society that it's not an issue. Oh, I have to share a bath space with a lady or a male or whatever. It's it's a total non-issue. And I remember reading, you know, watching um, Robocop and Paul Verhoeven even, you know, there's that fleeting moment where a girl's suiting up and you can see her boob. He even points that out. It's like, these people don't care. And that's like you said, Starship yeah, Troopers seem he, he, also he, Verhoeven. Yeah, he even makes mention of that in in uh, the Starship Trooper uh, commentary that he feels that in the future that that will become a non-issue. It it is a, a and it should be a non-issue. And in fact, kind of to extrapolate this a little side, a little tangent here, you know, this is a Lovecraft story uh, adapted, uh, elemental adapted. <laughs> I'm going to keep butchering that a bit. But, you know, on the subject of gender, we ha- our main character, Noah, is, uh, you know, a lady. You will never you'll never find a character like her in a Lovecraft story. You have to... No. It's the folks writing the derivative work that are going to give us a Lovecraft story with a, you know, a non, you know, prof- white old male professor as the lead character. Yes. All right, so back to kind of filmic uh, connections. Event Horizon... We mentioned that briefly, just in terms of cult classic, but, mm-hmm. you know, has that kind of, you know, underwater horror is very space horror, um, but, you know, the, the, all this emphasis on oxygen scrubbers in Event Horizon also plays kind of a big plot point in this, especially for the character of Smith, who has a defective oxygen scrubber. I mean, you don't have, uh, basically you know, Sam Neill hellified, you know, running around. So it's not, it's not a cult horror going on here, but there's shades of event horizon, I would say. Mm-hmm. I would also add to that. Um, and it's a good point. Um, underwater and I think space horror are very similar and they take a lot of, uh, similar elements because of the, the environment that they're in. And so I think Event Horizon is a great point because in addition to the oxygen scrummers, it also uses those common space horror elements of there's a small group of people. It's inherent that there's not going to be a lot of people on a station or in a spaceship uh, because of the fact that you need to be able to be efficient with a smaller number of people. Um, and so that we have that in Event Horizon. There's also, um, with Nora, we get that in the beginning. She talks about the confusion between dream state and reality. And um, there's, in space horror, there's also disorientation due to isolationism. And also, uh, as Nora speaks to, a lack of that day-night cycle that I, that's an identifier to keep you grounded and rooted into, in, the, in reality. And so I think that we get that in Event Horizon, we get that in Underwater, and we're going to get that in another movie that we're going to be bringing up, uh, which is me. Okay, so Alien. Alien. <laughs> That's probably the biggest one. Um, so we'll, we'll address the elephant in the room, so to speak. Okay. There's a couple other films out there, too, but yes, let's get, we'll, let's we'll get, get Alien the, out the door. We'll, yep, we'll do this, and then we've got a couple more. Alien out the airlock, actually, yeah. I should say. Um, there's callbacks to Alien Galore. And both callbacks and, I would say, uh, influences, obviously. Uh, main title font. The, the, the typeface of the title sequence mimics the, the iconic Alien logo, the very sleek lines and everything. It's subtle, but, you know, if you look at it, you say, I could see that being the mm-hmm. same typeface. Oh, yeah, and it does, you know, uh, 
was just watching something about Alien and and they showed the title sequence and it was it it has the same font. It comes up on the screen a little bit differently, but obviously it's it's a great nod um, to Alien. Uh, another element would be corporate interests trumping human life and the environment. We get that through the newspaper clippings. We get that at the end of the film. We get the environmental voice uh, through uh, one of our characters in, in particular. But definitely the corporate the corporate presence and interest trumps all. Yeah, Alien had Weyland Utani. This one has the TN Industries, and we'll we'll circle back and dive into that one even even more. But yeah, there's that evil corporation uh, linkage between the two for sure. Uh, with companies also comes technology, and as Mel Brooks says in the movie Spaceballs, shit. Even in the future, nothing works, and <laughs> that's what's going on in underwater, especially with doors. I can't think of a single door in this film that, that opens. Yeah. Nora has to come and basically bust it open and rewire it to get it to open. And it doesn't happen once. It doesn't happen twice. It happens constantly. And, um, and it happens a few times in Aliens. I know there's a couple characters in Aliens that have a little rig that they come to a door and they bust it open. They run a, a ribbon through it and it pops open. They have to hack it or whatever. But imagine that scene like ten times in uh, underwater. It's 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 almost kind of comical because if these characters did not have Nora around, they they wouldn't have left even the rooms they started in. Yeah, the captain would have been left in the in the pod room in the uh, or in the Kepler station if she hadn't been able to. Well. Gosh, I mean, Nora and Rodrigo would have died right at the beginning. Because he, he if, even if, says it. He says, uh, I'm just like a driller. I couldn't even open the door. Yeah. And, you know, that that's kind of, it, it's it's a sad line. You know, this the saying, I couldn't open a door. It's not like the door was locked or anything. Just couldn't. You, you think of those sequences in really bad horror films where you go up to the door and you jiggle the handle and it just won't open. It's kind of the... The, you can open a bloody door. Come on. They don't get stuck that often. But here, here this film, I, th I would say it's kind of a, a little play on that trope of shaking the door handle. It just won't open. In this case, it's bring, bring the mechanical engineer over, have her crack it open to open it because I cannot open it or close it. But it's kind of an interesting <clears throat> subtext of technology and how it kind of rules our life. I mean, we could go back to even, I think, the Stepford Wives in the early 70s about technology and, and even 2001 Space Odyssey, how technology has been uh, a benefit, but it's, it's also a hindrance, particularly when you're trying to uh, escape water. Uh, so... Um, kind of nodding back to my points in Event Horizon. Uh, again, we have a small group of individuals. In this uh, in this film, we have six, um, and they're in a confined space. And even though they're on the bottom of the ocean in this uh, Mariana Trench, the fact is that it's pitch black. It's, it's a confined space. We get this with um, actually the movie Pitch Black and the fact that, you know, only the light, you can only see so far as your light gives off. Um, and so there is this very dense, tight, 
confined space feeling throughout the film, and it works really well. well there it, is and a, it worked well in Alien, obviously. Well, there is an Alien film that plays with that, and that's Alien versus Predator, the, the first one, where they're in Antarctica. That's and true. They, they jettison mm-hmm. the, the queen into the water underneath you know, the ice and whatever, and that shot, even though it's underwater with all the bubbles and stuff coming up, it's basic, basically a, a simulacrum of shooting you know, the alien into space at the end of Alien and Alien. So mm-hmm. visually, they're also the same. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also, and back to the company type stuff, you you not so much in this film as it is in Alien with Mother, but you do have kind of this narrating computer voice that pops up now and then to kind of guide the character, saying, "Hey, everything's okay," or in this case, "Everything's not okay. Please evacuate." And when they get to the first command room in the Kepler, I, I this. It, there's all these kind of mechanical computer noises. It sounds like an oxymoron, but, you know, the old days of dot matrix computers and blinking lights, you know, computers had a bit more audio-ness to it. And, of course, that's also, you know, filmic. Uh, you know, a, a character has to cock a gun and makes that noise. And you don't have to do that, but you do it because that's what a film needs you to do to signify, hey, there's a sound going on here. Or, you know, unsheathing a sword. Well, you know, older days, you know, a computer lab would have that do-do-do, and in the first Alien film, you know, uh, while everyone is still uh, asleep, you know, it's panning through the cockpit, you know, it's getting the the beacon of LV-426? We're yes. going to go with that. LV-426. <laughs> and, you know, but it has all those kind of, you know, mechanical computer noises going on. And when, when they finally rescue the captain and they get to the command center of the Kepler where they meet up with T.J. Miller and the rest, it has those same noises going on. And it just made me just think, audio-wise, this movie has some callbacks to Alien and Aliens. Okay. Um, there's also the um, get-equipped scene. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, in Aliens... Uh, we have Sigourney Reaver's Ripley's character getting sued up. Uh, she's, you know, basically, you know, she duct tapes all the guns together. Yeah, she's duct taped. She's using what she has. She's the MacGyver uh, in that scene. And in Underwater, uh, Kristen Stewart goes to the abandoned uh, Shepherd. station, Shepherd Station, and um, is able to find, like, a, you know, commandeer an older suit. Uh, I think oxygen, and of course, there's a flare gun and some other items. And so she basically is like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get to the Roebuck. Um, you know, hopefully I can find others, but I'm getting there and I'm I'm getting the hell out of here. So she's got the equip scene. Mm-hmm. And then probably one of the more, I'm going to say, transgressive or subversive callbacks to Alien is you have a chestburster scene, but the role is reversed. You have the iconic scene in the first Alien where the chestbuster uh, comes from, um, you know, the guy's chest during the the meal scene, and of course that scene has been analyzed to death. You know, it's a you know a feminist scene, or you know, here's you know giving birth, or you know, it's been dissected quite well. It's a very shocking scene, but in this film you have a human chest bursting out of an alien. And so there's a sequence at the very near the very end where Nora 
uh, she gets eaten by one of the deep ones. And so what she does is she flyer, fires her flare. It boom, out she pops from its gut. And it's totally a reverse chestburster scene. It's a great visual scene, by the way. <laughs> it, 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 one, it's a great visual scene. Absolutely. Two, it's as cool as heck. But three, it is a... It is a crazy role reversal. Usually a, lo uh, a lot of, not just space horror, uh, like space horror that takes place on Earth and other horror films, where, you know, the fear is something within you. You've got a parasite inside you. You're possessed. you got to get it out. You know, movies like Slither or, uh, you know, all those kind of films out there where an alien or something gets inside of you, takes control, or it's whatever. Um, in this in this instance, it's a human inside of an alien bursting out, and I, I think that's kind of subversive. It is. Um, it's a it's a great scene because, and it's foreshadowed because earlier uh, Nora encounters the Deep One, and the, he goes right for her uh, helmet. He isn't able to, you know, try to take her up on that tower at that time because Lucian comes and uh, stabs the Deep One. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we, we see that the Deep One is definitely fixated on Nora and trying to swallow her. Um, I will say, though, that I think there is kind of sort of a chestburster scene earlier when um, Paul and Smith go out uh, onto that one they're investigating um, a distress signal yes and there is they find a body and there is a a baby <laughs> a, a baby deep one that comes bursting out of the dead body now i will say it's such a fast scene that it's really hard to see because i mean maybe if they slowed that down just slightly but um, it's it's effective as it is. But but there is but kind of that scene. You, there. you you have a normal chest bursting scene, and then you've got the human chest bursting scene. So yes. you get the best of both worlds. It's almost a thing. Well, you're going to burst from my chest. Well, I'm going to bust out of yours. Yes. Um, two other ones I want to mention, kind of back to back, and it's there's two video games I uh, that make me think of this film the first one is sinking city which is a pretty recent release maybe in the last three years and it's a lovecraft game it takes place kind of in an insmouthian type town it's always raining uh it's a great uh kind of lovecraft slash detective game but there's all these prolonged sequences in the game where your character has to suit up in a old school diving stuff and dive under the city and of course he's got a flare gun with him as his only weapon and there's you know lovecraftian critters down there and he has to shoot the flare gun at to to keep away so it's almost a you know video game uh adaptation of underwater for those sequences and also kind of slightly different uh game i i love this game it's called disaster report uh zetai zetushi toshi <clears throat> it was an old playstation 2 game and it's this the J japan makes this artificial city on an artificial island and it gets hit by an earthquake and you got to survive it but there's all these sequences of like you're, you're walking through rubble you got to squeeze your way through like rubble or balance yourself on top of rubble and i'm sorry rubble is dangerous and there's this seen very early in underwater where the the corridors inside the kepler are blocked and is full of rubble and they have to squeeze to these areas and i could not do that because one the claustrophobic but two that stuff is unstable you're going to climb on top of that rubble it's just going to cave out underneath you and more stuff's going to fall on top of you you are sol 
Yeah, I had a couple others. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't thinking necessarily video games, although I would say maybe deep, uh, deep, uh, not deep, uh, dead space for some of the confining uh, spaces and some of the creatures with the kind of more tentacly looking. Um, I actually had a couple other films, um, Evil Dead 2, uh, the Get Equipped, which is, you know, it's not just in horror films. We see that in a lot of other genre films, but we'll we'll keep it to the to the horror orient, you know, oriented ones. You know, for Evil Dead 2, he equips a chainsaw. There's no reason that Kristen Stewart, I mean, I think she even toys with one at one point in the sequence that she couldn't have it's a drilling site. There's drills out there. She should have grafted a chainsaw on her suit and gone out there and just sawed her way through some folks. Maybe so. Um, there's also, uh, as we've discussed uh, with some of the other films, there is a scene where uh, Lucian, Nora are on, are on top of this this futuristic tower. I think uh, it's a buoy. The... It's like a round buoy floating up there or something. I don't remember. Uh, its purpose th is definitely unknown. Yes, um, and they're up on top of this thing, and a deep one comes over, and it's very reminiscent of uh, Adrian Barbeau in the fog in the climatic scene where she climbs up on the top of the uh, lighthouse roof, and the the ghosts are coming up, uh, or the sea seamen, whatever, uh, they're coming up and they're trying to get her. Uh, on top of this roof. And uh, I immediately, when I was watching this scene both times, thinking of the fog. Um, I'd also want to bring attention to one comic book uh, that both you and I have read, and that is Caliban mm -hmm. by uh, Garth Ennis. And it's the cl climatic third scene. There are two main women. Um, there's a love interest between them. Uh, one is an engineer, the other one is a communications uh, specialist, and uh, the engineer actually punches the communication <laughs> specialist and, you know, puts her into the pod so that way she can't argue about it. And we do have that exchange. Uh, Kristen does smack Emily, a pretty good one, um, to basically knock her out of her, you know, her hysteria. Although I don't think anybody really goes into hysterics here. You're getting but, in that damn escape pod. Bam! Yeah, she's just like, you're gone. I'm staying. You and Smith are going to the to the to the surface. So I do feel like there there's definitely um, some similarities there. The uh, mechanical engineer in Caliban, you know, sacrifices her life to basically kill the parasitic uh, alien. And I apologize if that's a spoiler if you haven't read that uh, comic, but definitely read it. It's a good one. Yes, definitely a good one. It's, it's a space horror. So those are those are a couple more references that I had uh, from viewing this film. So, so textualness aside, the movie also does quite a bit of other things. And I think one of the first things we should probably talk about is Kristen Stewart and her looks. And I don't mean that in a voyeuristic or fetishistic fashion. You know, I'm not here to gush over who's hot and who's not. But, uh, well, what, this is a Hollywood film, so everyone's going to be attractive in it. But Kristen Stewart's um, 
appearance in this film is is a very noteworthy aspect of the film. It makes me think of Christian Bale, of how he alters his looks dramatically for many of the roles he's in. And, you know, Chris Stewart has been, you know, voted by many men's magazines as being, you know, super attractive. But in this film, she she doesn't look like you would see her, like in Snow White and the Huntsman, in the Twilight films. Her hair... Her hair is short. In fact, there's another callback to Alien right there. Sigourney Weaver shaving her head off in Alien 3. Um, Kristen Stewart's character, Nora, has her hair extremely short in this one. It's a very Sigourney Weaver, Alien 3 type aspect. Um, but she's dressed for utility, not titillation. Most horror films, you know, you gotta have that scene where some characters, you know, they might be getting on, or if they're not getting on, you gotta have an undressing scene, uh, you know, uh, you gotta show some boobs, or, or if you're a guy, show some butt, because, you know, horror movies never show dudes genitalia. <laughs> well, I mean, very rarely they do. Um, but, you know, her character and the other characters are as well, they're dressed for the exact role they're supposed to be in. They, they, they're they not dressed uh, like the one character in Jurassic World. And I forget her name all of a sudden, but, you know, she got rightly called out for, why are you, like, running around in a business skirt and heels from a T-Rex and a raptor? You know, uh, it's kind of silly. You know, they're sacrificing, one, believability, but two, they're sacrificing, you know, uh, this attractiveness in this character for something kind of silly. But Kristen Stewart's character doesn't have that. Yeah, there's scenes where her and other characters, they're in their knickers and whatnot, but it's just like the scene at the end of the first Alien film. Sigourney Weaver has to get down to her knickers to get into a spacesuit. You don't get in a spacesuit wearing, you know, jeans or a hoop skirt <laughs> or a blazer. Uh, in fact, they even say in the film, like, you have to get rid of these clothes because there's just no room in the suit. And these are not these aren't sexy scenes, and none of the characters are, I would say, are very objectified. Uh, in fact, you know, T.J. Miller even calls uh, Nora flat-chested, and I personally I don't think he should have said that, because it's pretty obvious the way she's done up that, you know, they've, they've made it not about Kristen Stewart's looks, they've made her... Uh, an average Joe character. That this is, you know, a facility full of scientists and drillers and workers. This isn't like the lady from Jurassic World, where, you know, beauty and whatever comes first. I gotta look like the high-powered executive. The high-powered executives is who put these people in danger in the first place. But um, I th that and that's a good point because <laughs> these are not, these are are people that we are going to identify. They're the blue collar, or they they have some specialty. That all of us as, as audiences uh, could probably relate more to and should relate more to than the tie-in uh, corporation. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think the more bureaucratic person is Lucian, and he's only bureaucratic because he's the captain, and he's running the thing, and he's, he, again, he's one of the, the good guys. He's there to actually get them out alive. He, he you know... Uh, you know, he has a couple lines where he says, tell me about my rig. How's my rig doing? Because, well, I mean, he is responsible ultimately for these trillions of dollars of equipment. But at the end of the day, that that's still secondary. First dairy is the people come first, and he has the plan to get them out of there. And again, you know, he's not in a suit and tie. He's banged up. He's in tatters. He's eventually in a suit. Um, even T.J. Miller, before he gets into his suit, you know, you see his his underwear has been shredded and everything. That, yes, that's a good yeah. good moment. Yeah. The, the characters they may be skimpy and in their undies for some sequence of the film, but it, it's not sexy, and, and it shouldn't be for sexy. If you're trying to watch the movie underwater 
for sexiness, you're definitely watching it for the wrong reason. And it's a good thing because to do that, it, it definitely de-glamorizes the, that, that aspect of folks and puts the focus where it should be on the characters and what they do. Um, makes me think of a, a slightly different Alien knockoff called Alien from the Deep, where there is a seek that movie's a complete ripoff of Alien, and it has a lot of in common of this one, uh, bad corporations, a crab monster coming from space, but there's a sequence at the end of that film where a woman has to get to her skivvies and enter a decontamination chamber, but that's a sequence, because it's an Italian exploitation film, that's a titillation sequence. It didn't have to be in the film. It's just there because that's where, you know, guys are going to go and watch, oh, you got down to her knickers and stuff. This movie takes the opposite route of that. Yeah, I like that about that because, I mean, I think uh, Kristen Stewart and I think it's just Jesse Henwick is the other woman in... Uh, who plays Emily. Both are, are very beautiful women. Um, it's played down. I like that Kristen Stewart, you know, let's just talk about the acting and um, the fact that she she holds her own. She's a believable character. She's a fixer. She's competent in her role. She ha quietly leads. She also motivates. She tries to keep the others motivated as a way of a survival instinct. Um, that works here. I, I liked her in this. The, the characters, they, they all bring something to the table. They all have a role to fill, and they all do it very, very well. The captain with taking command and getting him the original idea. And when the captain's not around, who's in command? It's Nora. Um, even T.J. Miller's character, who might be just Miss just dismissed as comic relief or maybe a little crazy because yeah you know if, just like how Nora's talking about at the beginning of the film you kind of go crazy down there and I think mm -hmm. Miller's character is probably the complete extreme of that he has a pet rabbit plushie that he keeps with him that he calls little, little Paul, Paul. Yeah. and he's always cracking jokes but so you might think that he's just the comic relief character and, and he kind of is you know he's bringing a little bit of of gallows humor to the situation they're in but his character does much more than that you know he brings in this literary slash pop culture awareness you know a lot of horror films especially like zombie especially zombie films and sometimes vampire films but you know the people operating in those films it's as if they never have heard of a zombie before what are all these guys coming out of the ground and attacking us if only we had a word zombies I don't know what that is. You've never seen Night of Living Dead? We don't know what that is. You know, a lot of films operate that the, the characters are just dumbstruck at, what, what is a zombie? What is a werewolf? What is a vampire? There's only been, you know, hundreds of years of books, art, pop culture, <laughs> movies that lay that down. Underwater is not one of those films. You know, if, if there were zombies in this film, T.G. Miller's character will be like... That's a zombie. <laughs> he totally would, but he, he brings in, like, what is this, some 20,000 leagues under the sea type stuff going on here? He's entertaining the notion that there's monsters out there. Yeah, there shouldn't be monsters. This is real life, but come on, we're six miles under the water, and we're, there's obviously something out there. What can I pull in to make sense of this? These aren't stupid people. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, Paul, you know, he brings in the comic relief, yes, 
But that's part of horror is that you have to have those pauses to kind of like bring it back to reality, to give you a pause before the next big thing that, that happens to these people. And so he is the timing that, that because this is a fast paced film. I mean, we open up and, and there's been an earthquake. The uh, Kepler uh, station is starting to implode on itself and, you know, things are, are collapsing. So you have to have that moment where you do get a little bit of relief. Uh, you do get a chance to catch your breath. That's very important timing with horror films. And, and Eubank understands this concept. And it, it's also brings about this kind of realistic situation or a moments to a situation, there's always going to be someone who has that gallows humor or has, you know, well, this is a real shitty situation, so I'm going to, you know, make the best of it that I can. And Paul's character does that. He, he brings in a little bit of voice of reason as well. Yes, he does. And I, I do want to, you know echo on your your comments with regards to the pop culture you know he brings in the classics you know alice in wonderland uh twenty thousand leagues under the seas reference uh you know as part of you know traversing into the unknown being a person that maybe shouldn't be there um even the newspapers they all bring what lovecraft does in his in many of his stories and that is this concept of, you know, legitimizing the events, giving importance and relevance to these events, and tying them to pop culture. And this is what Paul's character does. Well, if you think back to, like, Mountains of Madness, you'll have the characters there who they're trying to make sense of their surroundings. So what are they doing? They're bringing in paintings. Oh, these mountains are very much like these paintings I've seen. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, uh, we've talked about that before yeah. on the Mountains of Madness episode. But but he's doing the same thing. He's, mm -hmm. just, he's bringing in Alice in Wonderland, 20,000 Leagues Under Sea to, you know, he's crazy, but he's not stupid. He can make connections. And to that point, uh, Emily... Uh, early in the film, they are getting suited up, and she notices the painting up on the mm -hmm. wall. And I'm not sure, I haven't been able to find the painting, but I think it's like um, an exodus of Egypt or something. It's definitely very religious. It's, you know, this, this spiritual moment. Um, and so, again, another way to kind of connect that this is a realistic potentially, wink, wink, realistic situation that is occurring in the Mariana Trench. So you brought up, you know, fast-pacedness in the beginning of the film, so we should definitely talk about that beginning of the film. Um, the film opens up with Nora providing some narration. You know, she's in a communal bathroom brushing her teeth because, you know, that's, again, <laughs> we're talking about sexiness here, so hey, brushing your teeth. This is a normal thing. <laughs> exactly. You're, think you're thinking about life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and she finds a spider in the sink. And I just want to point out just how, you know, well, during her narration, she's talking about, you know, being down here, you know, she can't tell if it's daytime or if she's dreaming. And this entire sequence, you know, once she's alone, there are no other people around. And, you know, and a lot of dream sequences are like that. You're by yourself. And it's very calm. It's very, you know, something's about to happen. She sees the spider. And, of course, there shouldn't be a spider there. You know, it'd be like if you're in the International Space Station and you see a spider, something is wrong. You know, that you've got 
airlocks and decontamination and quarantine, all this other stuff to prohibit things except for you to get on that space station because if anything else gets on, you're compromised. And that can only apply to being six miles below the water. There shouldn't be a spider there. Unless you're Jeff Goldblum and you say life uh, finds a way. But it's a very surreal sequence. And when I first watched the film, I, I, I because of her narration, I actually thought it was a dream sequence. I thought it was going to be, oh my god, you know, I'm dreaming. All of a sudden this explosion happened. I'm running around. And she's going to wake up in a cold sweat. And then she's going to go up to the command room. And it's going to be 30 minutes just dicking around. You know, just sitting around. And people are like, oh, I'm getting strange readings out there. Oh, it's probably nothing. Go eat a donut. You, you thought it was like, going to be a slow burn. Uh, well, with, uh, uh, and a buildup. Well, a bad yeah. slow burn. Because, you know, yes. a filler burn. No, this movie doesn't do that. It, it That's not a dream sequence. Although it feels like a dream sequence. It is mm -hmm. definitely ethereal and otherworldly. Which is good. Because as a viewer, I want to be in on the same atmosphere as the characters are experiencing. But no, it just, bam, it, it cuts to the fat. There is no 30 minutes to 45 minutes of chilling in the command room and monitoring things before something goes crap. It goes to crap immediately. Well, and that scene as well as uh, Lucian and being both physically and emotionally injured, um, even though he brings the, the plan about the Roebuck station to take the pods to the service, we do, through the progression of the film, find out that he has an emotional disability, and that is the fact that his daughter died when she was 14. But he either is keeping the ruse up that she's alive or he doesn't realize it. Um, but there is, again, that... that Wonder, is this a dream or is this reality? You know, it, you had another little thought here. When they're going through their plan to get to the Roebuck, there is the abandoned shepherd station. And they mm -hmm. say, we should go there. And he's like, no, the shepherd station, there's nothing there. And it's been abandoned. The idea being, you know, before all this started, they made the shepherd station there as kind of a, a forward base before they brought in the Roebuck and the coupler and all that stuff. It makes sense. But he doesn't want to go there. And, you know, we find out when um, Kristen Stewart, Nora, gets there, you know, she goes through his locker and she finds out, you know, his daughter's been dead for a long time. But the the funny thing is is that that because he, he probably doesn't want to go there because of bad memories or whatnot. That's the only thing I could think of. And they're going to the Roebuck. But out of all the places uh, Nora winds up going to, the Shepherd Station is the most stable. You know, it's it's abandoned and ruined. It's not like at the end when they get to the Roebuck, which has like couple, mere minutes before it, you know, before it itself implodes because there's a giant Cthulhu above it. In case you forgot, there's a Cthulhu in here. It's almost as if they went to the Shepherd Station. That actually would have been their best bet to chill out there instead of going to the Roebuck. And then they could have fired off, you know, their distress and... Well, well, let's just be honest. You know, Cthulhu is probably going to eventually come there anyway. But it just—it's just funny that because of you know his his dead daughter or bad memories associated with it, that they didn't want to go to the Shepherd Station. But it turned out to be you know one of the safest places to go to, and probably might have been the best place to go to instead of the Roebuck in hindsight. So. There's some other little moments. Uh, we're talking about T.G. Miller and kind of those humorous moments, and. You know, not only is humor kind of used as a let's stop and catch your breath, but humor is also used in tandem with horror to kind of point out some hypocrisy and make some kind of political statements here. 
there is this sequence at the very near the end of the film where they pan up on a poster and the poster says something about the buddy system and it will save your life and and of course at first glance it, it is hilarious because this entire movie is a buddy system movie you know you got six people that are quickly whittled down to just a few people they all need each other to get through this it is a complete buddy system film there's also a second poster which says basically Working alone is against company policy, which is kind of interesting, given the fact what we know about uh, the tie-in, what is it? Tie-in industries, yeah. Tie-in industries, yeah. But there is, there's some, there's something else going on here, and it's the idea that the buddy system, that poster, the company put up that poster, it says it's your responsibility. It's as if the company has shed responsibility. They are not responsible for your safety. Not us, not the big mega corporation, but... You and your friends have to keep check of each other, not us. That's ultimately your responsibility, not us. And you, you see that in reality. You know, if if you're at if you're at work and you get sick, your company yeah they may have crappy insurance, but they're not going to take care of you. It's your responsibility. You got to open up a GoFundMe and have other people chip in. Or if you take the and this theme, this movie is very environmental concern, obviously, but. And and we'll talk more about that too. Yeah. But on an environmental level, you know, what we're finding out is, you know, it's the propaganda out there is pushing, it's on us, us, the, the little guys, to, to take care of the world. We have to recycle. We have to do all, well, we should be doing that anyway. But it absolves, you know, companies like Enron and other, you know, pollutant type companies of responsibility. Well, everyone else will take care of it. We're going to continue doing the bad stuff. And, and that's, that, that poster kind of sums that up. It's one, it's funny and ironic, you know, coming out of the water and, you know, you just encountered all these aliens and things are exploding, whole buddy system, ha ha. But at the, at the same time, it ties back into what we were saying earlier, the evil mega Weyland yutani slash TN Industries Corporation of, uh, they, they don't care. <laughs> you know, well, we're completely dis, dis, uh, disposable. And as we see in this film, they're all they all buddy up. Mm-hmm. They all kind of stay together. It isn't like the typical horror horror film where people get separated or they're like, "Hey, let's let's split up and investigate." So you end up on your own. Well, they do. They not... do get separated briefly, but it's try to get back as quick as possible. Yeah. But what what you don't have though is a lot of horror films. You have that one character, the asshole character, mm-hmm. that he's going to bring everyone down. The Paul Risers. This movie could have had a Paul Reiser. And, and, you know, the purpose of the Paul Reiser is to, you know, cause the death of two other characters, maybe. And when they ultimately die, you root because they're dead. This movie didn't have that. And it could have. And it probably would have been fine. But it was nice to have all the characters. You like every character. And you're rooting for every character. And even if they're not on screen that much, like Rodrigo, he, he, he's the first yes. to go. You still feel bad. And oh, it's yeah. nice to feel mm-hmm. bad. I mean, that means... That the director did its job to convey everyone's performances, and the actors did everything to convey what they could do. Yeah, to make them likable, because they don't have a whole lot of time. If anything, you know, maybe that would be a criticism against Eubank not not spending a little more time with developing the characters. But, but there's no time to do it, though. As you there, said, this is isn't. a chop, chop, chop. So you have to fit but, it in where you can. But like you said, that that gives credence to the actors and their performance being able to convey those personalities through their performance. Um, and I applaud Eubank for not taking 
some of those tropes and just running with them, but actually playing with them, twisting them, or rejecting them altogether. It's easy. He could have separated them all right from the get-go and, and killed off each one individually. He didn't do that. You know, he kind of followed the, the, the path of the posters. Buddy up, man. <laughs> well, we've been talking about a lot of other themes in this Lovecraft film, but we haven't talked enough about the Lovecraft stuff. So let's spend a few moments on that. I think one of the, the first things we've got to bring up, for laughs, of course, is the Lovecraft faint. <laughs> if, yes. If you're a character in a Lovecraft story, what's going to happen? You're going to see a scary ooh monster or even see your shadow, and you're going to faint and black out through all of this. And there is some fainting in this, but it's not from scary monsters. It's because, you know, there's an explosion, you got knocked out, or your oxygen is, is screwing things up with you. It's not that you're a weak-willed character like most Lovecraft. These are strong characters, and the fact that, you know, um, Nora, she overtly fires her flare gun to get a good shot of this giant Cthulhu monster, and any other Lovecraft character would be like, Oh, oh, I fainted. And then you wake up and you're, you're on bed, on shore. What happened? Oh, we rescued you. What happened? You know, we don't know. Well, because see, he writes, that's how he writes his way out of that stuff. He faints. And we know from reading our various Lovecraft stories as well as Lovecraftian stories. Yeah. Uh, like August Erelith, uh two weeks ago. So if you haven't listened to that, here's our plug. Please go and listen to our discussion mm -hmm. on August Erelith. But, you know, it's usually the men. Mm-hmm. It's typically the men that are that are in those roles, and they are not quite up to the task. So Nora's up to the task. You know, the the men who are fainting, if I may, because Smith spends basically fifty percent of this movie incapacitated. His, he his, he, he his oxygen scrubber took a hit. He took in some fumes. He is operating lightheaded. He he sleeps the entire movie out. So he actually gets spared seeing the monsters and stuff. His character makes me think of another character, and that's Barbara from Night of the Living Dead, who receives a little bit of criticism because, like Smith, she spends most of the film incapacitated while uh, Ben is out there, you know, boarding up windows and there's zombies outside and other characters are bickering. She's catatonic and on the couch. And Smith is, he's not catatonic, but, you know, he's incapacitated. He's got to be carried and dragged by other characters. His con and I don't want to diminish his contributions. I mean, he he shoots the alien, uh, the baby one, coming out of the chest earlier. You know, he's, he's also the love interest for Emily. So he, he does provide stuff to the film. But for the most part, he is dead weight. Okay, but anyway, but and that's fine, but, you know, the Barbara character gets a lot of criticism, like, oh, it's a woman, she's not doing anything, but you know what? There's a freaking zombie apocalypse going on outside. How are you going to react to that? And maybe for some folk, it's, I can't comp in a Lovecraftian sense, I can't comprehend what's going on. I'm going to shut down. And I wouldn't fault her for that. I know some other folks would. And I think the Smith character is very much like Barbara in that regard. He isn't shutting down because he can't comprehend what's going on. He, you know, he shut down because of his oxygen scrubber got, you know, knocked out. That's beyond his control. He's doing what he can. The other characters are helping him out. But for the most part, he's still an incapacitated character. His contributions are nullified. But it just shows it's equal opportunity. It's both men and women and other genders that, you know bad stuff happens to you and you do the best you can in the situation that you're in. He is the Barbara character from Night of the Living Dead and Underwater. Yeah, you know, he he's definitely that. 
He's also one of two survivors, um, and he he doesn't see all the monsters and everything like that. So he's kind of spared that narrative, and that does happen with Lovecraft. It also happens in horror films that oftentimes it's the the weaker person that sometimes is is the one that survives. We see that in Caliban. Well, Event Horizon, you've got a uh, baby bear. You know, he, he puts mm-hmm. himself in the airlock trying to kill himself, but he gets spared all the craziness in that film because, you know, they patch him up and they put him in, like, a little cryo chamber or something. But he get no fault of his own, really. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, evil Sam Neill and the ghosts on that ship, took, what do you expect him to happen? He's going to kick out the cryopod like, I'm back and save the day. No, he's he's messed up. So yeah. it happens, uh, and and it's I don't want to say it's good that it happens because you know we don't want bad things to happen to people, but it also helps you know it, it underscore the gravity of the situation these folks are in. If things aren't going to kill you, they're going to mess you up really bad and take you out of the the running. And it's a testament to the other characters that you still survive to the end. When you were down, other folks were able to help you out. Yeah, you know, it also, I think, lends, I think his character lends support to Emily, Mm -hmm. who is a biological research assistant. She's there for the more biological and environmental voice um, in in this film. But I think that Smith, through his character, lends to her developing the strength that she needs to have to survive because you know honestly at the beginning you're thinking oh well emily's going to be fodder for a monster here at some point <laughs> and she she survives she finds that that any power. other movie you're she correct would, she would have been, been dead yep uh but she finds the strength to come forward and do what she needs to do just like nora does and i like that and i applaud you bank for having two very strong lead female characters in this story any other, if this was a, a more B film, she would have been dead. Smith would have been dead. Nora would have lived. She would have set the thing to self destruct and get out. And there would have been like a chase sequence at the end of her in the skate pod yeah. and a Cthulhu behind her before it blows up. That's how like a more downscale B film would have handled it. That that would have been Alien. Mm-hmm. And and you and know that's... for all the criticism that this is an Alien ripoff. There are differences, and and there are substantial differences, and and should be looked at on its own. So, with that in mind, this is where we have kind of a a disagreement. Um, The question would be, if this movie did not have the monsters in it at all, you take out the Cthulhu, you take out the Deep Ones, you make this appear... Uh, underwater adventure disaster film. Uh, you know, something bad happens to the Kepler. They've got to traverse the ocean down there. And of course, you know, people are getting killed because of more environmental stuff. <clears throat> you know, uh, cracked uh, helmets and equipment going wrong, uh, debris falling on them. And of course, you know, get to the end and escape. Because the movie is, is a good chunk of that, is that the monsters don't really pop up until maybe the 50% mark where they become more antagonistic. But everything up to that point is a more natural disaster film. So if you took the monsters out, would you still have a good movie? And my my, my, my statement is, is this movie could have operated without the monsters. It would still would have been a fine film without the Lovecraftian monsters, without Cthulhu. But... Uh, but my, my, my thought is, adding those monsters in elevates the movie to something a little different. As as our favorite Uncle Roger would say, <laughs> this the monsters add the MSG 
to the fried rice that is this this movie. It, it takes it into a, a kind of a, a little new territory of of you know not quite kaiju films or anything like that, but it's a nice surprise. The movie would have been just fine without them. And it would have been a pretty competent, you know, disaster, corporate, whatever type film. But adding those monsters in, it gives it, I would say, a slightly uh, little edge to it, a little bit more dimension to it, another thing um, to antagonize the characters. And plus, we just have not seen a Cthulhu on the big screen yet. And it's nice that we finally get to. I mean, a real Cthulhu. When I say that, I'm not trying to disparage other folks like the Lovecraft Film Festival folks that made their Call of Cthulhu that was 1920s style, but come on, this is a big-budget film. We got to see a big-budget Cthulhu, and I I'm for it. So, now, you kind of flip-flopped <laughs> No, 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 because I'm still <laughs> operating under the movie didn't need that. You okay. still could have had a very good underwater you know, disaster film uh, without the monsters, and I still probably would have enjoyed it. So like a towering inferno, but underwater. Towering inferno, Poseidon Adventure, mm -hmm. all, all those other films. The movie uh, The Abyss. In fact, this movie is very much like The Abyss, except the aliens are good in that one; they're bad in this one. But you take, you know, you could take the aliens out of Abyss, and you would have had, oh my God, we're in this ruined rig underwater. There's a nuclear bomb beneath us. We got to go and disarm it. And you still, I think, would have had a pretty cool movie. Mm-hmm. But then you had aliens. And, and it's fine. But I mean, that's, that's what James Cameron does. But yeah, I still think without the monsters, it still would have been a good film. The monsters are the MSG for it. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> and so I, I feel that while you could have had a disaster film, I just don't think it would have had the same resonance that having Cthulhu and the Deep Ones in this film. I think that you have to have some sort of villain of some sort and i think that a disaster film would have been ho-hum um but having the the cthulhu monsters in it just elevated it to the next level and and they look like good. and and like you say no disrespect to any of the other films that have you know uh made nods to cthulhu or have had cthulhu even in the shadows the fact is that this is the first time I think that we've had a, a bigger budget where they've actually done it right and have actually done a, an excellent, an excellent yeah. effort that paid off where you have Cthulhu and the Deep Ones really visually stunning and within keeping of what I think that Cthulhu and the Deep Ones were the original you know, concepts that um, Lovecraft had in the 1920s. But unlike Lovecraft stuff, we see them in this. Lovecraft yes. stuff was, I just saw a tentacle around the corner and I fainted, or I dare not look back to see the monster behind me, you know, when they're escaping like Mountains of Madness. We're just not going to show the monster. We as the audience, we get to see the deep ones up. We get to see them inside. I mean, come on, when they gobble up Kristen Stewart, you got an inside view of a monster. You don't even get to see that in most horror films. You see Cthulhu you know, lit up by the flare through the window, trying to swim away when the thing's about to explode. They don't hold back. No, and I, I think that Eubank couldn't hold back. And the reason why I say this is because at the time of Lovecraft, we do not have the same 
institutional state apparatus that we have today where we have all the pop culture we have the internet we have magazines we have books we have picture books where anyone can go probably the most pervasive is online you can go online and look and see oh that's what cthulhu looks like or at least that's what that's that's artist's impression of what cthulhu looks like or the deep ones where in the 1920s a lot of people all they had were the books to really read or the little illustrations from the artists of the time and their thought of what this creature might have looked like. This is Eubanks' effort to convey what he thinks Cthulhu looks like based on a lot of a lot that came before it. But and I think shoes to fill for that as well. And he has yeah, to deliver. Yes. He has to deliver. And he did. And I think in this day and age, you have to show the monster. Uh, particularly on the film. I think that if he'd just done highlights and back backlit, I don't think that would have been enough for this film, not not with the pacing, not with the storytelling. You had to have a big payoff at and the end. And technology dictates that. With our digital yes. technology, there's mm-hmm. almost... There, there are certain movies where you don't want to show the monster. There are certain movies you do. And a movie like this, with the technology at hand, if not showing the monster is would be a letdown. Well, yeah, particularly with the pacing and the way the story is told, I think you had to have that big payoff at the end versus something that's a slow burn uh, simmering where you could get by with a wink, wink, you know, just slightly camera coming around that corner and not show a lot. Um, you had to do it all here. So so no middle ground for this film, either no Cthulhu stuff at all and you have a very competent natural disaster film or all cards on deck, you go full out, you're going to show that mother. I, I do want to bring up one more point, and it's something that we, we did talk about um, through the rest, and that is the environment. Emily is our voice of reason, where Paul brings in the pop culture. Um, I would say Nora brings in the more philosophical. They're both and the, different and the, types of voice of reasons. Yes. Both different kinds of t- voice of reason, but Emily brings the environmental. She really uh, points out the fact that, you know, they shouldn't be there, that they've taken too much because, again, this is a, a drilling operation. They're looking for uh, resources uh, for us greedy humans and corporations, and so we do have that environmental voice. Um, this is not unfamiliar for Lovecraft and Lovecraftian stories that we have some sort of concept of the environment and the the ecological impact. We particularly had this with the uh, Cthulhu Deep Down Under, all the stories that we read in that, and, and actually all the stories in that collection have elements of the ecology given the environment, you know, Australia and New Zealand being islands, um, and they're they're impacted by earthquakes and volcanoes. It's much more of a disruptive environment, and, and it all draws a lot from the color out of space. Mm-hmm. And the Mariana Trench is not dissimilar um, in looking at you know kind of the history of this trench. You know, back in the eighteen, I'm going to say the mid 19th century is when. You know, there is exploration, there is the advancement of technology and sonar and bounce back to kind of figure out the depth of this trench. And um, we've definitely found out a bit more about it over the last 160 years. 
Um, one being that um, the situation of the the trench is it's set on basically Teutonic plates, and it's a subduction system which basically forms that boundary. So it creates this chaotic and unstable environment which works well with the story and it is susceptible to a lots of earthquakes uh, the tectonic plate shifting so it is not a surprise that ecologically in the early 1970s there was the discussion of uh, this as a proposed target for nuclear dumping um, it was, <laughs> of course of course um, it was actually, through international law, prohibited the dumping, and so it has not become that. But uh, through more recent uh, explorations of this trench, uh, James Cameron, Cameron made the trip in uh, 2012. And of course, another alien reference there. Another alien reference, uh, real life. Um, and then in 2014, there was the discovery of what they call deep sea gigantism and basically that's where uh, species grow larger than shallow water relatives and i kind of played with could this explain what our characters encountered that you know the deep ones and cthulhu well are they really something more is there a shallow water cousin um, and these are this these deep sea gigantic creatures, and I resoundingly say, no, that damn it, that is a Cthulhu in the deep ones down there. So, um, but it is an interesting play, um, and more recently, following uh, a little further on the ecological uh, significance of this trench, is the fact I think it was three years ago. I think his name is Victor um, Keskovo. He's uh, did a dive with his, uh, I think his his uh, little shuttle ship is a, the, the Titan uh, or Triton, uh, and he went down there. And so now he's the one that's been able to go the furthest. Um, and he actually said that he thought he could see trash on the bottom uh, of the Mariana Trench. So, you know, there's definitely the environmental uh, component uh, to this story as well. Not played up as much, um, a little more subtle, but like with any good Lovecraftian story, there's a little bit of the environment and ecology concerns as well. Well, shameless plug, Michelle Brittany's book, Horror in Space, has an entire essay by yours truly that's about color out of space adaptations and the ecological problems that they bring out especially on small towns <laughs> and shameless plug <laughs> well on that note uh i think we are going to bring our discussion to a close with regards to underwater definitely great movie uh for horror fans lovecraft fans or just you know fans of you know uh sci-fi horror for sure highly recommended from both of us and now we'll turn to upcoming events. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning in for this episode of our Fragments for this month. We also want to say thank you to Gabby Triana, author of the recent novel Moonchild. She provided the intro blurb for this episode. We wish her much success this year. 
And in upcoming events on Scholars from the Edge of Time, we'll have a new episode streaming on Thursday, March 25th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you don't catch us live, not a problem. The episode will be available afterwards for download. And on HP Lovecast, episode 38 marks the first anniversary of rebooting HP Lovecast podcast. We'll have some uh, new features to talk about before turning our discussion to Dagon Rising by William Mikeley. My apologies if I mispronounced that. And uh, the book is published by Crystal Lake Publishing back in 2019. This episode will post on Monday, April 5th. And on HP, Lovecast presents Fragments. In episode 9, we'll be stepping back in time to the 1950s when we discuss The Vast of Night, a 2019 science fiction mystery film directed by Andrew Patterson and starring Sierra McCormick and Jake Horowitz. This episode will post on Sunday, April 18th. HP Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course, you can email us at hplovecast.gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by buying our books. Uh, Both Michelle and I have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we've edited or contributed to. As always, thank you so much for listening.